Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius. Because there will be a world without us. Welcome to Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a comedy podcast about death. We're two guys, Hank and John Green, who are brothers. We answer your questions, give you dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. Hey, John, how are you? Well, Hank, I'm just back from a long bike ride, and I seem to have uh, injured myself in my the seat area, I would say, broadly speaking, the sort of... Uh, Hmm. Well, I guess what I I guess I I guess if it were up in my privates, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea that the that the seat is a part of the body that is the part of the body that sits on the seat. So you put your seat on the seat, and the whole the everything seat. that touches the seat is the seat. That is my theory, and that whole part hurts. Um, <laughs> so I'm just trying I'm sorry. to. Uh, just trying to not focus on it too much. Hank, 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 Hank. What? What? Hank. What? Do you what? remember in our last what? episode, or maybe a couple episodes mm -mm. ago, I don't know when it happened. Uh -oh. Do you remember that you said that you were going to burn all the copies of a book? Oh, God. That, yeah. Because it talked about how pythons uh -huh. uh, lay eggs. Yeah. And of course, you knew we're that pythons didn't okay. lay eggs because they, yeah, um, they gave live gave birth. Live birth. Well, uh -huh. Hank, we got, really for the first time, <laughs> corrections to a mistake you made. It's so rare on Dear Hank and John. Um, oh, this, boy. I'm just going to highlight one out of many because uh, it turns out you could have just Googled this. There's tons of pictures of it. This one comes from Ishmael who writes, Dear John and Hank, uh, I could not help but notice a glaring error near the beginning of the latest episode. Yeah. Approximately two minutes into the episode, Hank describes a passage from a children's book that mentions a mother python okay. and her hatchling. I, yep, we've been, yep. Uh, and Hank yep. says pythons give live birth and don't have hatchlings. That's incorrect. Oh, pythons do indeed <laughs> lay eggs. It's almost like Hank should trust what's in books instead of what's in his mind. That wasn't from Ishmael. That was from me. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Uh, boas give live birth. Okay. Boa well, that's not an example. Yeah, but pythons. we weren't talking about yeah, boas. I know. I know. I'm aware. I'm aware. It's just I'm explaining how I got confused. All right. All right. Well, I am delighted. Old, I am absolutely delighted by this situation. Oh, I bet. I mean, frankly, I... Hey, we... 
I, well, the only reason it, so, it hurt so bad is that I spent so much time whining about it. Oh, and yeah. I, I, oh. I know. So just never, never whine, I guess, is the solution to that problem. Yeah. Uh, thanks for starting with that, John. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, did, did, you, did you not have a poem? Oh, I do. I have one. It's, a, it's a haiku by Kobayashi okay. Isa. Okay. Hit me. Everything I touch with tenderness, alas, pricks like a bramble. Dang. Now it's hard Oof. out there. It's hard out there for a Kobayashi Isa and other haiku writers. A lot yeah. of suffering. Man, yeah. A lot of I disappointment touched... when you try for the tender touches, Hank. Sometimes you find that, that it just comes with a bramble. Yeah, I tried to tenderly touch uh, Python, uh, live birth Python babies, but it just hit that hard eggshell. <laughs> that's, my, that's my poem for the day. Hank, I'm really excited to get to the questions from our listeners. We got some great questions this week. Um, and we did. Uh, this is my favorite one. Okay. So can we start there? Mm-hmm. All right. We've also got some great sign-offs this week, some great name-specific sign-offs. This question comes from April, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I deliver babies for a living. Oh. And as you probably know from experience, human babies are wonderful and amazing, but not always cute. This is especially true in the beginning when they're purple and wrinkly. I know it gets better, but sometimes new parents are a little shocked by their offspring's appearance. My Dutch mom has a saying for this problem, which basically translates as ugly in the cradle, but pretty at the table. (laughs) Is there some catchy phrase like this in English that I can use with new parents? Showers in the cruelest month, April. Oh, good sign off. I, okay. First of all, when you say I deliver babies for a living, that really sounds like you put them in a truck and FedEx yeah. them around Well, that town. is my assumption. How else would you deliver them? I don't, you, you're delivering them to someone from somewhere to something. Uh, it's really right. you deliver a baby from one end of a person to the other end is the most of the delivering that happens. I mean, my kids listen to this podcast. I'd like you to be as vague as possible. <laughs> okay. That's... That's just, that's it. That's the sitch. Um, you, John, were you, were you surprised by the way that your baby looked when it was, uh, when it was first? I mean, look, Hank, this is a podcast that's going to be publicly listened to, <laughs> but also that potentially my own children will one day All hear. Right. So they were both beautiful and amazing, and they looked like actual gods. They looked like <laughs> tiny cherubs. They looked like they'd been painted by Michelangelo. I was astonished by their beauty. Okay. Uh, samesies. Um, yeah. Uh, but with like a cherub painted by Michelangelo, except with the head of an almond. It's just. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Um, I'm sure Michelangelo never painted a cherub, and I'm going to get in a lot of trouble for that. We definitely, um, I definitely didn't have any of the people. There were lots of lovely people around. None of them said to me, uh, "Don't worry, he'll look better tomorrow." And I yeah, don't I think mean, you I should feel say like that because then the you're saying, worse, April. yeah, yeah. Then you're saying like, so just so you know, I'm aware of how ugly this thing is. You don't want right. to say that. Maybe they aren't thinking that their baby is super ugly. But, uh, but I, if they do look to be in distress, if they're asking questions like, is it supposed to look like that? Uh, yeah. Secure, yeah, give them some security in the fact that their baby is is normal. But you know, and sometimes they're not pretty at the table. Let's be honest. I think the first words that every baby should hear upon birth are ugly at the cradle, but pretty at the table. <laughs> like, like after a, after someone's gone through all of that effort to give birth, I think it's really good if the very first thing that you hear about your baby is the word <laughs> ugly. <laughs> Ooh, whoa, wow. Oof. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. You just give reassurance. So if people are like, 
is my baby is my baby ugly you can just be like no it looks like a regular baby you could just say what hank said the first time he met his nephew henry <laughs> well it's a baby <laughs> yep yep that's what that is this next question comes from jamie and we need to get to it so i'm going to have it be the second question because i i got i got this thing that i'm shaking at my microphone right now because i was so entranced by this question and by my inability to have had it previously jamie asks dear hank and john i come to you with an urgent matter i can't sleep at night without knowing how are hot dog buns pre-cut if they're stuck together in the package so we went and bought some hot dog buns john yeah uh and i i haven't opened them and i had never thought about this but it's true so they clearly like like there's a machine that just like lays out the buns like four at a time, but they when they get cooked, they bake together so that they're like, this isn't the case for every hot dog bun, but if you get the cheap ones, it's like this. So that they bake together and, uh, and they're all stuck together and you have to pull them apart. But when you pull them apart, okay, so, okay. So here's what I'm, here's what I've, I've noticed. I've got the four in my hand. The two on the outside are cut on the outside. So there, it's clear how that happened. The blade just went into the outside two buns. So I'm gonna tear those, two off because like that is obvious how that that occurred and then I've, I've torn that off and now we've got okay and that one now we've got these two ones on the inside which are both of their now that the outside buns are gone the outsides are both the sealed sides so what we have is in the middle and I'm sticking my finger in them right now they have been cut by a single blade that went right down the middle of the four hot dog buns, but was not quite the width of the two hot dog buns. So that blade went in the hot dog bun butts and out the hot dog bun mouths. And uh, and then if you open them, you see that this uh, this slice has gone through both of them, and uh, and that and and all the way through. So. It, they, yeah. it, it goes all the way through. It's not just like sliced on the inside. It's like the butt sliced too. So the blade, the blade comes in through the middle of the hot dog buns and then you get four pre-sliced buns. Um, and this one actually you can tell that the blade went way further through one of the buns than the other one because the, it, like this one is almost just two pieces of bread and this one is really secured together. And now I have lots of hot dog bun crumbs on my desk. So, well, Hank, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you answering this question in the form of a podcast where we can't see any of the things that you're talking about. Well, you know what a um, hot dog bun really butt adds, is. It really adds to the experience. You know the situation. To, uh, like you're not confused by what a hot dog bun butt is i'm not confused by what your seat is we're all on the same I mean, page I, you know what our listeners are a lot smarter than i am hopefully they'll be able to follow what you just said i'll as post far a as diagram can... on the patreon all right we'll post a diagram on the patreon hank's gonna work up an infographic to help you out there <laughs> that's patreon.com slash dear hank and john uh we got another question it comes from caroline who asks Dear Green Brothers, what is the proper response to being constantly serenaded? Mm -hmm. See, many members of various musical acts have written a song prominently featuring my name, including the Beach Boys, Outkast, Fleetwood Mac, Brooks and Dunn, Chicago, and of course, Neil Diamond. While I love my name, I've come to expect a specific reaction to it. Is there an optimal facial or verbal response? Like, frequently those serenading me act like they are the first to ever think of this idea, while two, they struggle through the lyrics, which of course, <laughs> Caroline has memorized 
Uh, I don't mind so much when my good friends burst into Neil Diamond upon each side of me. I would mind oh, the hell out oh, of yes, that. Yes, but I when would. the random store clerk hears your name and breaks into song like it's the eighth inning at Boston's Fenway Park, what's a person to do? Sweet, comma, Caroline. <laughs> Great sign off. Good sign. Yep. Yeah. Uh, boy, first of all, I want to say that uh, last night, laying in bed, I Googled that in, indeed. It's not touching hands. It's oh God! Please stop. Please, reaching out. Like not only is it you singing, which you said me, you wouldn't do anymore, but it's you singing you, this this song. Sweet oh. Caroline, don't do it. Ba, no, ba, no, ba. no. I'm sorry. What was the question? Oh my God, Catherine hates the ba ba ba's so much. She hates them so much. I mean, much. to me, it's not even Sweet Caroline without the bop, bop, bahs. It's just like, don't bop, bop, bop. There's hordes there doing it. And why does everybody say so good? That's not even in the song. It's so good. Um, it's because the song is so good. I'm sorry, <laughs> what were we talking about? What was your answer? My, I was I was saying that I spent a little time and I Googled that indeed, like I didn't know Outkast had a song about Caroline or that, that yeah. Brooks and Dunn did. I didn't even know what Brooks and Dunn was. But there's a lot of songs about Carolines and that is a kind of blessing. But my guess is that all you hear is Sweet Caroline. You don't hear right. people like, burst out into outcast and if you did you'd probably be like oh thank the lord for not singing sweet caroline right now a little bit of variety in my life is fantastic um, right but but there's something i think in particular about caroline where you immediately that song stuck in your head because it's somehow become so ingrained in culture thanks i think largely to red sox fans but no uh, no, it's no? before Red Sox fans. I don't know, I, man. Hey, I just want to point something out real quickly, which is that Caroline doesn't even mention the best song about her name. Oh, my gosh. Uh, which is the Old Crow Medicine Show song, Caroline, which Sarah and I almost had as our first dance at our wedding until we realized that it is about a brother and a sister. <laughs> <laughs> but it is a great song. It is worth looking up. Caroline by Old Crow Medicine Show. Um, a total winner for your name. I do think that this would be difficult. I, most blessings, Hank, are complicated blessings. And being named Caroline is certainly one of them. I think that I would just, um, I think that I would, when it was a store clerk or something, I think I would just say, you know what? I've, um, I'm familiar with that bit. Nope, deeply disagree. Uh, because because you don't want to make some stranger like have a less good day. Oh, just because like, then, like gonna... then they're going to be like, oh yeah, I'm a freaking idiot and I should oh, never so talk you don't to think people you can educa- ever. So you're one of these people who thinks like, don't educate the world one at a time, just suffer a little <laughs> bit every day. <laughs> well, I, I mean, yeah. I, I guess if you're going to the same store over and over again, like just stop and they like sweet, they serenade you every time. Stop going there. But yeah, maybe you just uh, maybe just have a different name. Sometimes I guess you got to give them your oh, ID. Oh my god, and that's they, a great idea. And then they look at the, your your ID and they're like, Ah, sweet Caroline. Hey, girly. Bah, no, bah, no, bah. no. No, you just go. No, you, you, when people look at your ID, they they're gonna see like Caroline, whatever your middle name is. Uh, du- Busey. Yeah, that's, I bet that's Caroline's last name. Um, and uh, and you could just be like, no, I go by Dubs. I go by Dubs because that's that's how you shorten Debussy. I believe I oh. believe that's how the original Debussys did it. That's mm-hmm. how they started going by Dubs. So I would just that's what I would do, Caroline. I would just like when you're asked, you know, what's your name at Starbucks, just be like, it's Dubs. 
Yeah, or you can have like a like, no. Here's the, here's the idea. You have a button, and then it it says I serenaded Sweet Caroline, and then every time somebody does it, you just give them a button. That way, that's a great idea. Not only is it fun for all, but it costs you extra money. <laughs> that's I think that's the best idea so far. Keep a bunch of buttons that say <laughs> I serenaded Caroline Debussy with Sweet Caroline, and then maybe have a couple that for the Outcast song, just in case. <laughs> just, just in, in case. case. Just for roses. <laughs> Oh gosh, there's a lot of it's not even that particularly that good of a rhyme. I don't know why Caroline is such a great great song to I think the I, I think the last syllable hits so hard and it feels like the last syllable of Caroline has always felt like a celebration to me. I've always been predisposed to Caroline's, by the way, as you know, Hank. Um, there is something about that name that has always uh, rather captured me in the way that uh, the, the name Catherine captured uh, mm. uh, Colin Singleton in my second novel. This question comes from Brandon, who writes, Dear John and Hank, so a friend of mine recently got his driver's license, and he's a great driver, except for one thing. He's always nervous making left turns. Do you remember that, Hank? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. It was terrifying when you sure. first started out. Yeah. So I'm curious, how far can you get making only right turns? Curious friend, Brandon. John, do you know that UPS takes 90% I left turns? I only wanted to read this question so I could share that UPS fact. <laughs> yeah, in 2012, they just stopped making left turns. They were like, we're done with that. That's too much work. We're gonna- well, they figured out that it was more fuel efficient to make three right turns, not every time, but most of the time, yeah. than it is to make one left turn. And so uh, in, in certain big city situations, the GPS just says to make three right turns. So, I, I, Brandon, I think that that's no problem. I have no issue if your buddy wants to treat the world like a UPS driver and just <laughs> do three rights instead of one left. Just go around and big. Well, they also like you. Nice thing about being a UPS driver is like you got software that's planning your route for you. So you got to go everywhere anyway. So there's got to be a way to get there by making a bunch of right turns. But they do make left turns sometimes. But 90% of the turns they make are right turns. Um, My longtime mentor, Eileen Cooper, um, who, you know, is not a young person and has probably been driving for, I don't know, I'm going to say 30 years so she doesn't get mad at me. Eileen has like never makes a left turn. She has a strict policy that if she's going to have to make a left turn in a drive, then she's just going to take the train. (laughs) (laughs) So your your friend is not alone. UPS drivers and Eileen agree. Right turns are the way forward. Practice makes perfect, John. This next question comes from Valerie, who asks, Dear Hank and John, earlier this year, I got accepted to my first choice university program at the far... As the fart of the start of the fall, as the start of the fall semester gets nearer, I think that I'm going to start getting cold feet. So I guess my question is, is it normal to feel extremely unqualified going into university? I know that I got into the program and that I earned my place in the program, but I can't shake this feeling. Hiding in the freezer to avoid summer melt. Valerie. Yeah, I mean, uh, by the way, Valerie, um, I think that feeling may accompany you through the rest of your life. Yeah, just get, get, get used to this one. It has accompanied me through my entire life where I have always felt like a complete imposter and like I uh, just don't, I am not qualified to be doing the things that I'm doing and that at any moment the world is going to figure that out and the public shame that will befall me will be unlike anything that any human has ever experienced. <laughs> uh, wow. Uh, that's a, that's, well, hopefully it's not that bad. 
but I, John has a gift for hyperbole, but also for anxiety. So who knows which one it is? Um, it's pro- true. A little it's bit true. of both. My, Remember my guess. that woman who made the extremely inappropriate tweet about HIV infection in sub-Saharan Africa right before getting on an airplane. And by mm. the time she landed, mm-hmm. she'd been fired from her job and her husband had divorced her and <laughs> all of her children had disowned her. And she was a pariah on the social Internet. Yeah. I think about that every time I write a tweet. And then I remind myself, okay, well, but this tweet isn't horrible. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> probably nothing bad is going to happen because I'm not saying something that's, like, terrible and lamentable. But the truth is all of us make mistakes, Valerie, and at any moment the public could come for you and destroy your reputation. <laughs> what was the question? <laughs> I have a huge problem. This, we're we're going to get back to you, Valerie, I promise. But I have a problem where, like, I'll, if I post something like even a little bit controversial, I have to check like five minutes, 15 minutes, half an hour, an hour, like to make sure that I didn't do something super wrong or that I'm not. Right, or that something that you wrote wasn't taken right. out of context or that it wasn't hurtful in a way that you didn't anticipate. Right. Yes. Yeah. And like, that's, that's a lot of work for a freaking tweet. Anyway. Uh, I mean, the, the, uh, the internet has become, I think for most of us, um, a place that does not relieve anxiety necessarily. <laughs> That's for sure. But um, yeah. But I, back to Valerie's question. Yeah, I think it's it's really easy to be anxious about something that you you aren't doing yet. Um, the worst part for me of any time I'm gonna perform is sitting backstage waiting to perform. And that's that's where you're at right now, and that's where a lot of people were at until just now, basically. So it's very likely that Valerie's at school now. Um, but uh, that, that, like, not knowing how it's going to be and imagining all the ways that it could go wrong, that is in part, like, your brain preparing you for a new experience, but it's also, like, you can't control it, and so it's just unpleasant. Focusing on, like, like uh, achievable objectives that are like, okay, well, I'm going to go to school. Here's how, like, here's something I can do to make myself a better person in the meantime, or, um, or like once you are there you're still going to be feeling this but in different ways there's always this sort of like the next thing that you're worrying about um but focusing on sort of like how you are growing and how you have grown and and giving a little bit of look back at like how much more effective and intelligent and knowledgeable you are than you were you know four years ago which is you know has been a probably a pretty big time of change for you i'm guessing if you're an incoming freshman. Yeah. Or if you're anybody else, really. I mean, four (laughs) years, four years should represent a significant amount of change, even to a 40 year old man. By the way, thanks for the birthday wishes, Hank. I'm just kidding. You didn't wish me a happy birthday. I called you on the phone and I wished you a happy birthday. I meant on today's podcast. I want birthday wishes all (laughs) month long. Happy birthday, John. I know it was your birthday. However long ago that was forever ago. Get it was over quite it, a while ago. you old man. Quite a while ago. Um, Hank, I've got a question for you. It comes from Jackie and Josh, who write, Dear John and Hank, mm-hmm. as we're sitting on our back porch enjoying a fire on this chilly August evening at 64 in the suburbs of Chicago, my fiancé Josh and I are wondering, does fire have mass? It seems to be weightless as you're watching it. Is it even possible to measure the mass of something that's so volatile? Flamio Hotman, Jackie and Josh. <laughs> Does that, does that just mean, like, catch on fire, attractive men? 
I believe it does. Yeah, I think okay. that's the technical Latin. Flamio Hotman. It depends on what you mean. Like, like, there's a lot of conversations about what fire is or like what's fire made of, uh, and and that's like so. Th- there is, in a way, fire is a chemical reaction. And in that way, it doesn't have mass because it's not really a thing. It's an activity. It's like running doesn't have mass. It just is a, it's a verb. Um, so in that way, not really. But like fire is made up of particles and those particles and energy and both particles and energy have mass um, or have mass equivalents. So yeah, fire, the stuff that you're seeing for the most part is like glowing smoke. Smoke that is so hot that it's glowing, and uh, really? for for one way or another, for one reason or another, and it's complicated. The is reason, that right, or is re- this like pythons giving live birth? I'm pretty sure that I'll this never is trust. Right. I can't trust you ever again. I'm, I'm pretty afraid. sure that this is right. That like there's little particles of smoke, and they are so hot, and they are so energized that they are producing light in various ways, and the ways in which they are producing light are, I think, pretty complicated. But I don't know. Um, but they are particles. And so those things, and and currently why they're going upward is because they are surrounded by very hot gas that has been heated up in the fire, and that gas is moving upward and it's carrying those particles with it. And uh, as uh, cold air sort of rushes into the fire, uh, that that hot air is hotter and it's less dense, and so it's moving up uh, because colder, more dense air is being pushed underneath it. So gravity is the reason why fire goes up, uh, and in when there's no gravity, fire doesn't go up. And you can actually see videos of fire on the space station, and it forms a sphere, which is weird. The that um, seems like a dangerous game <laughs> to light a fire on the space <laughs> yeah, station. They, they they control it pretty well. They have little I fire would hope boxes. So. Hey Hank, slightly off topic. Uh, mm-hmm. Did you know that you can actually eat? Uh, by python eggs, the eggs that you didn't think existed. Uh, they're about twice the size of a chicken egg, and wow. they have more yolk in proportion to white than a chicken egg does, and a stronger, richer taste. But other than that, there's not much difference. People love eating python eggs. I'm looking at some python egg recipes right now. Wow. I mean, how often do pythons lay eggs, and can you just farm pythons for eggs? Um, uh, um, you're not. Mm. You don't know the answer. Why? Uh, no, as far as I can tell, Hank, people only raise pythons to eventually release them into the Everglades uh, to create <laughs> a non-native invasive species that can go to war with alligators. That's my understanding. That's good. This one comes from the siblings Crowell, who write, Dear John and Hank, recently my sister and I went to our local hipster mall. What? What? I'm sorry. There's a hipster mall? Uh, what? Do you shop for hipsters? Yeah, I'm surprised to learn that there is such a thing as a hipster mall. The malls near me still all have Spencer gifts inside of them. Uh, To our local (laughs) hipster mall to catch a screening of Rushmore. Even more surprising. Wow, yeah. Both of us have been longtime listeners of the pod, and we both thought the recommendation of the film was too great to pass up. We enjoyed the film thoroughly, but found ourselves in profound anticipation of the quote, I ain't even here, Sergeant. I'm in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Much to our surprise, it wasn't even a quintessential instance in the movie as a whole. While we have since made peace with being misled with what we thought was the most iconic quote in Rushmore, how could one make peace with being misled by those we look up Why? to? They che Cavolo Stay Ficendo, the siblings Crowell. I hope you guys didn't just make me curse in Latin. Uh, I ju- how did you mislead people? You said there was a quote in a movie, uh, and the then whole there was thing a quote in a movie. Me- 
to me, the whole thing that makes Rushmore great is that many of the best lines are not presented with like, and now we will cut the music so that the character can say a line and then like CSI Miami style put their sunglasses on. <laughs> like, I love, I love that there are so many great little lines in that movie that you might not even notice till your second or third viewing. I apologize if I made it seem like it's a, uh, like a critical moment in the movie it's not like it's it, it's a play within a play moment and but i i just i i love that line i love that line um so <laughs> i i can't really apologize because i'm not really sorry because i think that's what makes rushmore so great but it does have some other great lines for sure and don't worry the next time that i'm working on a book i'm sure that i will quote all of them to hank while we are potting i really need to watch this rushmore movie john i assume <laughs> that it is about uh the president's uh murder mystery oh my god um, oh my South god Dakota. how how can okay so there's the most amazing thing in the movie. I think I've even told you this before. The most amazing thing in the movie happens very early on where the Bill Murray character says to Max Fisher, what's the secret, Max? And Max says, the secret? And Bloom says, yeah, you seem to have it pretty figured out. And Max says, the secret? I don't know. I guess you've just got to find something you love to do and then do it for the rest of your life. For me, it's going to rush more. I like the idea that like Max Fisher has figured out his passion, but it's going to this one particular high school <laughs> is it's just perfect. Okay. That does sound good. That does sound good. I would like to have a passion. Uh, I, I have many. I would like to have a particular passion. Oh what, my God. I, what what would I wouldn't give like? for Hank to have one passion. What would that even be like? I sometimes uh, I see like people who just tweet about one thing and I'm like, yeah. you person yeah. who loves this one particular weather satellite how do i be you how do i just yeah, love I mean, I that do, i wonder yeah. if those i wonder if those people in real life though like on a day-to-day -day basis if they're always thinking about that one particular weather satellite or weather satellites in general or if like they also have lots of other interests they don't share those interests with the public mm -hmm. I, I i would like for you to have one driving uh public facing interest so that I wouldn't have to have so many jobs being the tail to your many comments. Could my, uh, could my like one public facing interest just be going on Jamaican holiday? Oh God. That's so obviously the phrase. No, it's not. That's... That was so good. No, no nobody knew. Wasn't. Nobody no, knew. Everyone knew. Nobody everyone knew. knew. <laughs> everybody it forgot. It wasn't even close. Everybody forgot there was even a phrase of the week. They didn't even it, remember that The only that way it they existed. didn't know that was the phrase of the week is if they had forgotten that there is a phrase of the week bit that we're doing for a little bit to see if it works, which it probably isn't. Um, we had we had a phrase of the week, which is Jamaican holiday, but Hank wedged it in there with all of the subtlety of like Donald Trump getting eight tenths of the way through a speech and realizing he hasn't said anything about building the wall. <laughs> I felt good about it. I felt good well, about it. I, I think that it's a definite loss. I think it's a definite mm. win for me. Um, but that said, today's podcast is brought to you by Jamaican Holidays. <laughs> Jamaican Holidays. I actually don't think Hank has ever been on one, but Sarah and I go on one every year. Oh, my. I didn't, I didn't know that. Today's podcast is also brought to you by Hot Dog Bun Butts. Uh, get yourself a four-pack. Put your finger right down in the middle and say, that's, that's how they do it. 
Hot Dog Bun Butts. And today's podcast is additionally brought to you by the Sphere of Fire on the International Space Station. Yet one more reason not to be an astronaut. And finally, this podcast is brought to you by Python Eggs. Hot, fresh, and tasty. Available at your local Python Egg Eatery. Uh, special for your favorite Jamaican holidays. Let's get back to questions from our listeners. This one comes from Laura, and I think you're going to love it, Hank, because it gets into something deep, ominous, dark, and deadly. Dear John and Hank, here's the thing. (laughs) So a mermaid is half fish and half human, right? What do mermaids eat? I know that fish often eat other fish, and that's completely acceptable. But as someone who is half fish and half human, would the thinking and feeling human part of a mermaid feel cannibalistic eating a fish? If a mermaid does feel cannibalistic eating fish and assuming they have fish friends like Ariel does in Little Mermaid, then would said mermaid be disgusted at their fish friends for eating fish? Additionally, would a mermaid be able to survive, get enough protein, etc., on a vegetarian-type diet with what they have available in the ocean? (laughs) Do you think that a mermaid considers shellfish such as clams and mussels to be part of her own species? or distinguishes these as edible food sources without guilt? Hank, there are many good questions within this question to unpack, but to me the critical one is, do we make a distinction between species and, like, order or class or genus when it comes to cannibalism? In short, Hank, was it cannibalism for humans of the Homo sapien uh, species to eat Neanderthals of the other um, mm-hmm. human species. Is that cannibalism if you eat a different species of humans? Because Neanderthals had, and Homo sapiens did coexist. What, would it have been cannibalism to eat them? Uh, I mean, so I'm answering this this question, uh, but I, before I do, I gotta say that fish are not as closely related as we are with Neanderthals. Like, there are lots of fish that are much more distantly related than that. So, there are a lot of fish Especially when you're talking about shellfish, which aren't even fish. They're mollusks. Right. So that's right. a totally different thing. But anyway. But like, can uh, a clownfish eat a parrotfish, or are they too tight? Well, they, I don't think either of those fish eat uh, eat fish, but... Well, hypothetically, Hank, hypothetically, <laughs> well, can like, a clownfish like, yeah, eat like, a... Yeah, like, can a, can, a, can a shark eat a shark? Can, like a, can a great white shark eat a hammerhead shark and be like, no big? And I think yes. I think absolutely yes. No big. But can All right, it, so but, can, a, can but, a member of the Homo sapiens species right, eat a that, member of the Neanderthal species and not have it be cannibalism? I think it's not cannibalism, but I still think it's really wrong. Mostly well, just the it killing. Definitely, it definitely happened. Cannibalism yeah. was super common for almost all of human history. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I, I think... You that, think it's wrong? I think mostly the killing is wrong. Like, like if you come across a dead Neanderthal... I don't know. Mm-hmm. It gives me the willies. That's for sure. Yeah. I've got the willies. Yeah. yeah. I don't think it's wrong, Laura. I think that you can eat whatever you want to eat as long as uh, you don't kill it. And if you're going <laughs> to eat something that did get killed in order for you to eat it, then you should be emotionally and morally ready to have killed that thing. That's basically what I think. But I will say that I think it wouldn't be a problem for a mermaid to be a vegetarian. Like, I think that they could pull that off. Oh. There's so much seaweed, and the seaweed is very, it's high in protein. It's got, seaweed's got everything in it. Yeah, it's good stuff. Got kelp. Uh, but I, I, I do a little wor- worry about, like, how do you cook underwater? Because you're oh, definitely, everything question, is sushi if you're, if you're yeah. going to be a mermaid. You, like, and everybody it, likes sushi, but nobody wants sushi all the time. No. Just take it down to one of those deep sea vents where it's hot and weird and cook it. Just hold it oh. over the vent. 
I mean, this is a very adventurous hypothetical mermaid that we've got. Um, I mean, the good news is that there are no mermaids. <laughs> Wait, God, I've, I'll tell you what. If my what? daughter does listen to this, she's going to be devastated. <laughs> Do, uh, does Alice think there are mermaids? Alice is so funny. She The only things that she believes in are leprechauns, which she believes are real in Ireland, no matter how many times I tell her that they are made up and that they are definitely not real. But she'll be like, dragons were never real, daddy. And I'll be like, that's right. And she'll be like, unicorns are not real. And I'm like, that's right, Alice. And she'll be like, but leprechauns are real. And I'm like, no, they aren't. <laughs> and she's like, they are in Ireland. And I'm like, no, they're not in Ireland. They're not real anywhere. And then she'll say, and mermaids are real. And I'll be like, yeah. And she'll be like, but very rare. <laughs> well, what are we to tell her different? I mean, I don't even know where at some point we're going to have to break the come from. Did you ever listen to that episode of This American Life where the poor kid whose parents had never quite broken the news about unicorns was at a college party and uh, they were discussing <laughs> endangered animals and the effects that humans have had on, on biological oh diversity? God. And she asked, are unicorns extinct or just endangered? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the best advice that we can give that young person who's headed off to college is that unicorns were never real. So now you're totally ready for your first year of university. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, now also we we have a. Is there like a special label on iTunes for like like Alice can't listen to this one? Yeah, it's like, like the E, except and up. it's just an A. It's just like no <laughs> Alice's because. Hank, before we get to the news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon, we have uh, a couple more things to mention. Mm -hmm. uh, most importantly, we need to give you, I need to give you an update. You might remember Clara. Remember? Yeah. Clara, who lost her vitally her important uh, shared journal on the Greyhound bus. Mm -hmm. Clara, whose it's... name I was convinced was Clara. I misread the question. Her name was Clara. So uh -huh. I want to first apologize to Clara. <laughs> Secondly... She wrote in to say, Dear John and Hank, thank you so much for answering my question. I was ecstatic when I heard it. I wanted to let you know that we found the yes. notebook. Also, I wanted to let you know that John's advice was helpful because I found it in my room. Clara! <laughs> Come on! Oh, Come man, on. Clara. Clara, you got to look in your room before you call Greyhound. Or Dear Hank and John! No, that's the definitely definitely contact your friendly local advice podcast before you call anybody else. Um, we well, also got job, some name John. specific sign offs that I want to read. Hank, yeah, uh, yes. we, got, we got a great one from Cat who signs her emails off. Curiosity hasn't killed me yet, Cat. Uh, we got a great one from Tyson who signs off uh, his emails of Tyson men. <laughs> I really like this one from Mary, who uh, signs off, eat, drink, and be Mary. <laughs> oh, it's great. great. It's gold. It's so good because it's, it works both ways. And someone wrote in that their mother has an amazingly British name specific sign off, the crown, comma, jewels. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I also want to thank Alex for sending in a couple suggestions for my daughter, Alex when she's old enough to uh, be writing emails. Uh, I very much like the sign-off with love or malice. This one's from Alice. Good, good, good. Not allowed at the Vatican Palace, Alice. What did, what did Alice do? That's probably also going to be true. 
<laughs> Hank, is there any way that I, I could go first? Because I have incredible news. I have the most exciting news that you could possibly imagine. Did you score a point? We scored, Hank, in the last two games, AFC Wimbledon scored, wait for it, six <gasps> goals. Goals are possible. They were to save goals it up. Goals are us. After scoring one goal in the first three games of the season, uh, just kidding, the first four games of the season, and no <laughs> goals uh, in the previous like six games of last season, uh, AFC Wimbledon scored uh, two goals against Doncaster Rovers uh, to win their first league game. Uh, before that, someone on Twitter had sent me a very mean message. What's the difference between AFC Wimbledon and a triangle? Um, a triangle has three points. And that was very mean. And I just want to say that that was mean. But you know what? Now AFC Wimbledon has four points. Four league points. Take That's it. pretty much all you need to stay up. Um, it's a critical win against Doncaster Rovers. Uh, and, um, and I'm really uh, excited about it. It means that AFC Wimbledon are now well out of the relegation places by one point. Um, and uh, <laughs> yeah. Right where we need to be. Four points after four games. And then uh, last night, as we're recording this, the Dons played in the uh, all-important Cheka Trade Football League trophy, which is one of these, like, uh, you know, it's one of the, like, cup games that isn't about the league. It's like a different competition where all the teams in England play each other. And AFC Wimbledon started um, a team that can only be described as pretty much all children. Uh, in many cases, <laughs> literally. <laughs> Uh -huh. uh, in many cases, some, some literal children played, um, but they played very, very well. They scored four goals uh, and won 4-3. Uh, score, goal scorers include, included uh, Egli Kaja, uh, Ant Hardigan, who is 17 years old and just uh, signed a, a professional contract, uh, and Cody McDonald. So very exciting to see the young players from Wimbledon get a chance to play and to play so well. 4-3 victory, 2-0 victory, two goal, uh, two wins on the trot. Uh, uh, the Dons are going up, Hank. Next season, the championship. All right. Uh, or this season. You, you just got to win more. Yeah, we just have to win a lot. Yeah, go win, we'll Got to win a whole lot. John, you know what a big problem about going to Mars is? Is it the, that the fuel weighs so much and you need to like extra fuel to pay, to push the fuel that weighs so much? That is one of the big ones. Uh, but but a lesser known one is that uh, omega-3 fatty acids are essential uh, essential oils, not in the not in the meaning of essential oil that you have heard of, but uh, but essential meaning that we can't make them ourselves, but our body needs them. So we have to oh, okay. eat them. And they actually break down over time. They they are not stable, and uh, if you if you try to if you try to just put them in a pill, eventually they turn into other stuff. And uh, so basically, the scientists are like, we need to bring something with us that can make these things. And yeah. uh, and also in general, when you're going to Mars, you want to save every atom and turn it into something useful. And so that means like, like when you're peeing, like that pee, you're going to take all the water out of it and you're going to drink that water again. But then you're going to be left with some other stuff, a lot of urea, for example. You want to mm -hmm. use that. You want to turn it into something useful. Well, mm -hmm. some new research has taken that urea and uh, and combining it with carbon dioxide, which is, you know, we exhale it, but it's also, there's lots of it on Mars. And, uh, and, uh, and a yeast, as well as a cyanobacteria, which all together can turn urea and carbon dioxide into two different things. One, omega-3 fatty acids, which you could then wow. eat and be like, this is delicious, and I, I sprinkled it on my toast this morning. 
mm-hmm. or spread it on my toast, I guess. Uh, and the mm-hmm. other, uh, uh, like basically polyester, so that you can use that to, uh, you know, it's just a plastic that you can use to, in like a 3D printer to turn into, you know, whatever the 3D printer needs to make. So uh, this research was uh, presented by Clemson University's Mark Blenner. Uh, associate professor of chemical and biomolecular engineering, and the the hope is that in the future, because like right now, like it sort of all gets t- like tied up inside of the yeast, inside of this little fungi, like one celled fun- mm-hmm. fungi thing, um, that not only will we be able to sort of like get those yeasts to leave it behind in some way that we can get it without having to kill them, but also that we could potentially engineer them to be making very specific molecules. And that would allow us to create better plastics that would be more useful and also better stuff for eating. Um, so yeah, all the, we, we needed some of, the, some of the nitrogen urea to help make the, some of those things. And Great. Uh, now we got, now, now, now that's happening. So yeah, uh, you can watch a video about it. That's on the uh, go. I no, thank it's on, you. It's on. It's no. uh, it's pre- produced by PBS Digital Studios on um, is there, is on the reactions channel. I don't, there's a I little. Can't, there's like pictures of of like you know urine sample vials. There's no one peeing. Oh boy, oh boy. That, I mean that is like nothing has ever made me want to not go to Mars. Quite like knowing that I'm gonna get my omega three fatty acids from the part of my pee that I'm not drinking. <laughs> Did you know, John, that on the International Space Station, the U.S. side of the space station has a urine recycler, and so they take the urine and they go through a whole process and then they drink it. But on the Russia side of the space station, they don't have one of those. So, what do you think uh-huh. they do? Uh, do they just shoot it out into space? No, John. They put it in a giant bag and they bring it over to the U.S. side of the space station and put it in the <laughs> our machine. <laughs> <laughs> oh man space uh, the final frontier in so many ways oh space what are we gonna do with all this pee hank what did we learn today john we learned that mama python and hatchling do kiss waggling round and you shouldn't burn books and we also learned that hot dog buns have butts that get cut somehow we learned that UPS uh, takes 90% right-hand turns and that Eileen <laughs> Cooper takes 0% right-hand turns because she'll just take the train, thank you very much. Left-hand turns. It just doesn't take any left-hand uh, turns, I'm to be sorry. clear. That's very confusing. Um, and lastly, uh, we learned that Hank does not have one passion, but it would be nice for his brother if he did. Mm. Yeah. Hank, thank you for uh, potting with me. We're off now to record This Week in Ryan's, our special uh, podcast that we do every week where we talk about a Ryan who lately hasn't been named Ryan over at patreon.com slash dearhankandjohn. Uh, you can find out more over there if you want to join in on This Week in Ryan's, the worst eight minutes of your week. Dear Hank and John is produced by Rosiana Hals-Rojas and Sheridan Gibson. Our community manager is Victoria Bongiorno. It's edited by Nicholas Jenkins. Our music is by the great Gunnarola. You can email us at hankandjohn at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter, Hank Green and John Green. Easy enough. And as they say in our hometown, don't don't forget forget to be be awesome. awesome.